Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. We're happy to have all of our listeners. This is the weekend edition, and we try to do something different, but I think we have a, a little bit of news stories to go through. This weekend edition will be on racializing everything is what I would call it. So we're going to have some discussion of that. And then we'll also look at the phenomenon of people leaving California. But before that, let's have a word from our sponsor. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. I usually forget to say who I am. I'm Sammy Wink, and Victor is the Martin and Billy Anderson Senior Fellow in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution, and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I'm going to try to calm down. I got a little animated in our last session oh, out of okay. character. <laughs> that is out of character. I, yeah, I, I was more I was more farming Victor on an old Oliver tractor on the eleventh hour, boiling over than I was Victor in the faculty lounge going, "Wow, you know that." Kind of <laughs> so okay, 
So I, I think the subject today is just everybody's beginning to notice all the racializing of everything, whether it's antiviral drugs or other medical treatment or racial quotas in hiring or student admissions and housing and safe spaces at the university. So lots of I'm calling it racializing, segregating populations. We could go so far as maybe to call it apartheid going on. And I was thinking that maybe we, you could talk today a little bit about what is the goal of the left in all of this racial segregation? And then look maybe at who's supporting it. How long do we think people are going to continue on with this? Black Lives Matter, that in the aftermath of George Floyd went up to about 55% approval. In a Harvard-Harris poll, it's 57% disapproved. Even in a left-wing Civitas poll, it failed to get 50%. So people don't like this. And you're talking specifically about the New York Department, New York City Department of Health, that has decided to have a scorecard of allotment points. So if you're old or have a comorbidity or a particular race, you get more points. It seems that race is the most prominent. And as I said earlier in the broadcast, it would mean that if you're very, very healthy and you're a South American aristocrat who's very wealthy and you came to the United States as a legal resident, you are a person of color, even if you're a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Brazilian, truly you are or whatever. And if you're Joe Smith, a retired taxi cab driver in his 70s, who's white, then he will step aside for a life-giving new antiviral drug from Pfizer, $700 a pill, even though it might save his life and it will be of no value or won't help much to the Spanish-speaking aristocrat. I'm taking an extreme case, but you can see what happens when you go down that race thing. The other thing is, Sammy, when we started, this whole thing started when I was in high school in the 1960s, and we were told that the new affirmative action, the Bakke case, I think was the early 71 or 72, was kind of a cowardly way out. But we were told that there would be a few decades where racial preferences, and you couldn't call them that, they were called affirmative action, would be necessary to bridge the gap. Well, the Great Society is now about $14 trillion, and we're into over a half century of racial preferences. And rather than this waning, it's intensifying. And the old joke was that, well, everybody has no problem with affirmative action for English professors or classics professors, kind of insult to professors, because merit doesn't matter anyway. They're all boring. So we're just going to pick by race. But you never do it with airline pilots or cases of life and death. And guess what? United Airlines announced a diversity, equity, and inclusion program where I think it's 50% of the trainees are going to be based on race, and those are going to be pilots. And so when you start dealing with life and death industries, and you start dealing with life and death medicines, and you start to exclude people on the basis of race, then you don't have a country. And I say that because we passed something called the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and I read it very carefully. I think it's Section 4, it says no public agency 
shall discriminate or show bias on the basis of race in its extension of services or as a public servant. In other words, you can't do what the New York City Health Department did. It's illegal, and yet they're still doing it. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why a federal judge hasn't issued an injunction, but it's illegal. So that that's one thing. The second thing, very quickly, is you know, the Confederacy, I wrote an article about that, the new Confederate states. And remember what the old Confederacy was. Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the newly formed Confederacy, said the following, basically. Um, again, I'm just doing it ad hoc. The problem with you Northerners and your constitution is you didn't mention white supremacy and white race. In fact, you didn't mention race at all. But we here in the South, this new confederacy will be based on the superiority of white people. And we're going to, and basically he was right. There were all sorts of racial categories. And that for a time, that hiatus of the reconstruction ended with then the implementation of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan, and you had a racialized society. And what does that mean, Sammy? It means that people were cognizant of the percentage of non-white blood they had. And 116th damned you to a discriminatory position in society. And the Confederacy was formed by the refusal of people in the South to obey federal laws or to claim that federal post offices or armories were their own. In other words, they nullified federal laws. And remember, in addition to this, there was legalized segregation bathrooms, safe spaces, etc. So where are we? You know, 100 and what, 55, 60 years later, we're going back to theme dorms. We call them theme houses, but they're racially segregated dorms where you can pick the racial profile in many colleges of your future roommate. I was at Cal State Fresno. I think they had four different racially segregated graduations. And there are places on the Stanford campus, University of Colorado, all of these campuses that are safe spaces where people of particular races are urged or not prohibited from going to. And then we have people who are actually, when they send in their applications, they send in DNA tests. This is, you know, kind of a cult thing, but it happens. You, you know where that all started, though, Can if I can just take it even back for they used to have women's colleges and you would still hear this today or even the women private high schools and they would say well we need to have these women only because otherwise men come in and dominate the scene and it's, it's not healthy that. for these nobody it's had not any healthy. Pro- nobody had yeah. any problems with them there are still women's colleges they have black yeah. colleges nobody had any problem with that either This was different, though. This had not happened. This was a return to the Confederate mindset that said, one drop, even if I can't tell who you are, one drop makes you black. One drop makes you non-white today. And just as people in the South who were light-skinned tried to pass for being white, so they would get the privileges of a racist society. So we have the War Churchills and the Rachel Dolezals and the Elizabeth Warrens who are trying to pass as non-white to get the racial spoils of a racist society. It's no accident. We have 550 jurisdiction in George Wallace fashion who say federal law does not apply to Fresno County or Sacramento 
the city of Sacramento or San Francisco County, we nullify it. We will not allow an ICE officer in our jurisdiction to take a prisoner who's on going to be released, who is here illegally. We don't, we're not going to give them a, a retainer or any of that. They cannot come in and get them. That's against the law to do that. 550 of them. That's exactly what the South said with George Wallace in 1963 when he said, I am not going to get out of the doorway of the University of Alabama because the federal government has taken my National Guard and said, you are federalized now. It's a federal law that he's violating. And guess what? That's what we're doing now. And can you imagine, say, the University of Alabama in 1963 or 64 or 65 when there was integration, when people were saying, I do not want to have an African-American roommate. And so the purpose of the whole civil rights movement was so a college student at Fitzer or Pomona in California can say, I do not want a white roommate. That's where we are. We don't say that, but that's where we are. And we're segregationist society. And Trump should have just said, I am going to suspend federal funds to any institution that violates the 1964 and 65 Civil Rights Act. He could have done that. He should do it. And they should do it with the First Amendment. And they should do it with the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment of due process. The universities are just flagrantly violating the law. Yeah. So who do you think, I mean, it just sounds so corrupt. Who do you think is supporting all of this racializing of everything? I can tell I mean, you. I can tell yeah. you. I'm glad you asked. I didn't know you were going to ask that question but I've spent a great deal of time thinking about it. The first group are the wealthy white leftists who are intent that the consequences of their own ideology, they shall never experience or suffer from. These are the Pelosi's that live in gated estates, the Zuckerberg's that build walls around their various homes, the Feinstein's that have Chinese spies who are their chauffeurs, Etc. And what I mean by that is, if you take the New York City example that you brought up, do you really believe that left-wing people on the Upper West Side that make a million dollars a year and live in $4 million homes when they come down with the sniffles of Omicron and they want to get a monoclonal antibody, but more specifically a new Pfizer drug, let's say, do you really believe that when they go down to their little clinic and they're told, sorry, you're white, get in the back of the line, that that's going to be the end of the question? I don't. I think they're going to get on and call the mayor or they'll call their friends or, and they're going to find a way to get the drug. Just like they're all for affirmative action. But I can tell you at many schools, I know this from firsthand knowledge, if you give about 10 to $12 million, your child, if he qualifies, will get into the university. If you are a 4.5 GPA student from Fresno and you have almost perfect SAT scores and you are a white male and you have no money, you're not going to get into Stanford. It's just not going to happen. But it doesn't affect these people. That's why they created them. It was a psychological mechanism so they could feel good about themselves at no personal cost. They don't hang out with people that don't look like them. They don't go to PTA meetings with Latinos, except their maids they see or their groundskeepers. They don't work beside people of the middle classes. They don't like the people they despise the most are working white people. 
people. We know that from the vocabulary of disparagement, deplorables, irredeemables, dregs, no teeth, smelly Walmart, all that stuff. And so it's aimed at those people. So they said, we don't want those people in the university. They're white. But when it gets too, too close to home, they, oh, my God, Johnny didn't get in. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't get a drug. Well, then they start to use their privilege, and there is white privilege for them. The other group is wealthy minorities that are part of a half century of affirmative action. These are people whose parents had affirmative action. These are people who have not been near the inner city. These are the people who cannot speak Spanish. These are the people that are one half Spanish or Argentinian. And so there's a whole boutique. These are people from India that are very wealthy in my area. And so there's a whole boutique group. And this is a fight on the Lido deck for privilege with their white bicoastal elite. So I'm Dom Lamont and I want the better time slot. I'm fighting with Brian Selter or something. I, oh, I'm Oprah. I want to get my magazine out and not that magazine out. Or I'm somebody in Hollywood that wants this premier billing. It's a scramble for the spoils of capitalism among the very rich who are white and say they're not white. But does this have anything, this whole movement, to do with stopping the 800 people who were killed in Chicago? No. Does it have anything to do with the people on the border that are, that are Latino or Hispanic or Mexican-American? Their, their cities, their towns are overrun with people that are not tested and not vaccinated coming in from Central America into their communities? No. Does this have anything to do with a very wealthy, white, guilt-ridden, bankrupt, affluent class who created this monstrosity and never suffers the consequences from it? No, it's all directed at the white working class. So if you took at these universities and you asked them, what did you do in 2019? They would tell you as far as admissions by race, they would not tell you, but you could find out the information that about 12% 10 to 12% were African-American, about 10 to 12% were Latino, about 25% were Asian, and then there were probably somewhere about 40 to 50% so-called white, of which 55% of all those groups were women. So what I'm getting at is there was about 30% white male, and when you take away athletes and legacies that tended to be overwhelmingly white male because there were a lot of these sports where there were not so-called people of color. It was very hard to get in these schools if you were not a wealthy white kid or an athlete, if you were a white male. Now, it's about 15% of the white male population, even though they represent about 33%. So we're into repertory admissions. And you know what's going to happen to these these self-important, sanctimonious schools in academia? They are (laughs) getting in thousands of minority kids that have not had a chance at a competitive education or tutors or home environments, and they are putting them into the university. And I can tell you, after talking to academics, they're terrified because they know that if they give C's and D's that can be shown to be disproportionately given to a particular racial group, they're going to be in trouble. But they also know that particular racial groups under this new repertory admissions policy cannot do the work that they used to assign. So what happens? You either 
don't assign it, or you take your reading list from eight, eight authors for a semester, major works down to one or two, or you have what they call equity grading, where you don't take off for a paper turned in late or an assignment missed or class never attended, and everybody gets a C and you have no problem. Now, if you were a faculty member trying to get your second university press book for tenure, would you just give everybody C's that got <laughs> F's and not and be happy about it? Or would you stand on principle and give a kid an F who was African-American and didn't, you're going to be dead in the water if you do? And so it's insidious. And this country was built, I know there was racism and there was classism and all that stuff, but there was a meritocracy. And that's why Asians and Irish and Jews and black, everybody excelled eventually. But if you destroy that meritocracy at a time when we're in an existential fight for our survival with Russia and China and Korea, it's, it's scary because it will filter down to everything from not having competitive hypersonic weapons for deterrence to not be coming up with enough people who can figure out how to win in Afghanistan it's going to seep into the larger society. And I see to myself when I drive down the 99 freeway, the main longitudinal artery in central California, indeed the whole state, I, I shudder because there are people who obviously didn't pass any test to be a truck driver. They're in the middle lane going 80 miles an hour. They have no idea. Or they're in the left lane. Or I see people that are weaving in and out at 90 miles an hour. They look 15. And Every aspect of our society is starting to coarsen because we are so obsessed with diversity, diversity, inclusion. We don't have a meritocracy because we're afraid that it would not reflect who we are. If I could take you back to where you started, which was who's supporting this agenda? And you said, well, it's this elite culture that doesn't have to pay the consequences of their own policies, but they need the masses behind them, or at least 50% of the masses behind them. So are you, is this going to be a Plato thing where they're just stupid followers and zombies or something walking behind these elite? Or what is their motive? Like the other people that yeah. are in on this? Well, first of all, race, crime are not necessarily the main issues. When Donald Trump was president, the crime rate was still very low outside the inner city, but it was even lower then. I think 550 people were being killed. That's a horrible statistic, but it's not 800 like this year. And people were voting on a whole array of issues. Trump's tweets, whether they were gonna get a lot of money from taxes or pay a lot of money from taxes, where they wanted free this or free, that kind of stuff. But that stuff is starting to fade now because this issue of crime, but particularly race is starting to dominate every discussion when you can die if you're the wrong color you can die and the people who are dying are not the culpable people they were born if you take somebody 40 years old that person was born 10 years after the civil rights act that person who was a white male never got one benefit of being so-called white if he was in the middle classes or lower middle classes or the white poor and I guarantee you, my colleagues on the Stanford faculty haven't hung out with a white poor. They should come down to the Central Valley and deal with the Oklahoma diaspora kids. They were very, very poor. They never had affirmative action. They never will have affirmative action. They have blue-collar jobs. They don't have college degrees. Many of them don't have high school diplomas. They're not 
annoyed it. And the idea that you're going to tell somebody like that, that they have to stand in line so Don Lamone or LeBron can get their Pfizer pill because they've suffered so much is absolutely absurd. Class is class, class, class is the distinction, not race, not anymore. And so they don't want to do that because so many people have made it and they're not in the lower classes, they're upper middle class, or they're very wealthy, and they're not white. And if you look at the per capita income of ethnic groups by ethnic affiliation, I think so-called generic whites are about 17. They're behind Chinese, they're behind Arab Americans, they're behind Armenian Americans, they're behind uh, Japanese Americans. So they're behind Caribbean Americans or behind, I think, African Americans from Africa. So this is when I see Joe Biden. Can I just say something, Sammy? I'm going to ask, beg your permission now. When I saw Joe Biden, I think tonight, look at that camera and then scream in that sort of confused septuagenarian voice and say, pay your fair share. And we're going to have uh, we people are being hurt, Latino and black. And Asian. I thought. Well, you're not. When have you ever paid your fair share? We were just told on an audit that you owed $500,000 you got out of in payroll taxes deductions from all this money. Do you really think, Joe Biden, that if we summed up all the expenditures of you and your brother and your daughter and your son and your nephews and your nieces and your brothers, and then we summed up all the income that came in from Ukraine and Burisma and China and was distributed through your Mr. Big Guy 10%, you think that was square the circle? I doubt it. I think you've spent a lot more money than income you reported. So don't give us lectures about privilege. And where do you think your privilege came from? And since when are you not white? Really gets me mad. You know, when I first got in trouble in academia, I think was my third day. I was a part-time teacher. I made about $600 a month farming, 1984. And I was so happy to get a contract for $452 a month to teach two classes. Can you imagine that? Latin, introductory Latin and introduction to Latin literature and translation. And a guy came up to me. He said, I guess you're the new classics professor. I'm a philosophy professor. And I had a little Greek. I said, that's very good. Can you, first of all, are you tenured? No, I'm not even full-time. I'm part-time. Well, can you just translate this for me, i.e., it would be in your future interest to do so. And he handed me 10 pages of Greek from a very obscure philosopher, Epiphanius, I think it was, Christian cult philosopher. And okay, I'll do it. And then another person came up and the three of us were talking and he said, uh, well, we've got this guy who's just a clinger on and he's an old white male guy in his thirties. And he, we're never going to hire him because we need to get more minorities. And I said, well, what's your profile? And he said, well, you know, we got nine, nine white guys. I said, were you all hired in the 60s when jobs were begging? He said, yeah. And I said, did any of you have a PhD when you came? He said, no, we were ABDs, all but dissertation. So I said, in other words, you have to have a PhD now, but some of you were hired without a PhD with an MA? He said, yeah. And I said, you're all white males. He said, yes. And so you're going to deny this young white male who has a PhD and is written because you need diversity? Well, I think that's wonderful. Now, why don't you retire? 
And how many colleagues are over the age of 65? Oh, we have three or four. Why don't they all quit and die on the altar of diversity? But they never do, do they? So this is what's the whole engine that runs this farce or a bunch of very privileged white people who virtue signal and do their little performance art, but they never take any consequences. They never make any sacrifice. And the moment they do, Sammy, this whole thing will blow up. And that's my prediction that somebody in BLM really miscalculated because when they thought it was cute. And I'm not, I'm not putting words in their mouth. We had two women that just spoke, I think it was the Indiana University, the Indiana public school system, when they said, there is no such thing as crime. It's just a construct. Or when we had that BLM activist in Milwaukee say, hey, after Waukesha, when Mr. Brooks killed six people, he was the of a revolution. So there were people that were bragging that the crime had started to leave the inner city. Well, that is going to boomerang because once you start hijacking wealthy white suburbanites and once you start breaking in to Whole Foods or Starbucks in a suburb, then your support's going to vanish from the white people and the privileged white people and the segregationist white people who were your biggest benefactors. Mm-hmm. And that's when the whole woke thing will end. Remember about Tara Reid. I always go back to her. I mentioned her to you before. Me Too, Me Too was fine. It was wonderful. We got rid of the ogres like Harvey Weinstein. And then we started going after, you know, Matt Lauer. And then we went after Garrison Keeler. And then somebody mentioned George H.W. Bush had grabbed some girl when he was president in the butt or just patted her. And then in a wheelchair, he did the same thing. And we started getting very close to home. And then, bam, Joe Biden, a woman came forward and said that 30 years ago as a Senate aide, he had not just touched her, kissed her, he had sexually assaulted her. And yet that time, the Democratic field was blowing up. Bloomberg, the great savior, was fizzled out. Nobody in their right mind wanted Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. Cory Booker was nuts. Julian Castro was a dud. Beto was betaized or whatever happened to him. And Bill Biden was the great savior of the party. And guess what? Remember Senator Hirono? Women must be believed. Now, <laughs> women must never be believed. That accent is perfect. <laughs> I mean, it was almost like you slut. Why are you dare talking about that about Joe Biden? You know, breathing down little girls' necks and all that stuff. No, no. So this was all created by the wealthy white liberal class and its competitors and the minority white wealthy class. And it was a top-down phenomenon. It said, we don't care about the inner city, poor African-Americans or minorities, and we especially cannot stand the white working classes who are useful to us to demonize, as General Milley did, to hunt them out. I almost vomited when I heard him say that. You know, he's up there with all these medals and then Austin with all these medals and all of this that he's got is what he had a mask and he has a visor and three shots. And we have all this performance art. I keep saying that word. And then they start talking about white supremacy. What does that mean? Does that mean you're going to go after everybody who hasn't been vaccinated because that's a profile of a white supremacist? How do you know who's a white supremacist? There are very few white supremacists. There are, you know, as I said earlier, 75% of the people who died in Afghanistan and Iraq were white males when they only constitute 
35% of the population, if they want to go to college, are going to make up about 13% of the entering class. Or what's so demonic about that? I mean, they're giving up a lot of slots on the quota system in going to college, but they're losing a lot of slots on the quota system going to Iraq. Would General Milley say, I'm for diversity. I want to create an, I'm quoting him literally, I'm quoting quoting him literally, I'm for an army that looks like America. So I think it's about time that we pulled, I don't know, half our frontline combat troops out of war zones because we're just losing too many white males and everybody else has to share the burden. You know what he would say? How dare you, you racist Hanson? How, we don't think like that. That's beneath you. Of course, that's how he thinks. He just doesn't want to be called on it. Yeah. No, well, another... you you have me convinced of the unpalatable ideas and policies and all the hypocrisy and lies of this elite white left wing leadership. But you haven't answered my question really of why these people why these people are following them. Because right? This but... was not out in the open to the egregious degree it is now. Because Mark Zuckerberg and Silicon Valley and the Democratic Party they put about three billion dollars three and a half billion they outspent the republicans over two and a half to one they controlled the media they controlled wall street they controlled the corporate boardroom they controlled entertainment they controlled hollywood they controlled k-12 they controlled academia they controlled the think tanks the fund the private foundations they they controlled professional sports they had an echo chamber silicon valley print media washington post npr's PBS. That's how they did it. And they had more money and more levers. And they did not talk about these things. But now they the curtain is drawn and we see what this woke thing is. It's a little guy with gears and levers. And it's pretty ugly. And I think a lot of people are saying, you know what? I didn't like Donald Trump tweeting and I bought into all this stuff. But this stuff is my life. This is my existence. And if I can't drive down the street without getting carjacked, or I can't go to a shopping mall without seeing somebody run in and just take food and prance out, or if I can't go pick up food like Joseph Epstein wrote today in the Wall Street Journal without fears for my life, or my son who played by all the rules and got a 4.2 and did all this, and he's not going to get into a college that he deserves to get into, if that's what it is, count me out. And so you'll see there's going to be a big reaction. And it's not me, Sammy. Just look at yeah. what the left is saying. All of our listeners know that. All they hear every day is democracy dies in 2022 or a military officer. Trump will stage a coup in 2024. We must be mobilized. Or Kevin McCarthy, if he were to be speaker... He would do this, i.e. do the same thing that Nancy Pelosi did to them, to the Republicans. So they are scared and they're scaring people because they are terrified. They do not have an act. If I ask you, Sammy, okay, Sammy Wink, your chief, Ron Klain, chief advisor for Biden and advisor also for the 2022 elections, pick the issues you want to run in in 2022. What are they? You mean if I'm, I'm sorry, who am I advising on this? You're advising House Democrats. So you're the liaison between the president and you want to say president's got some great, it's got some great agendas and you run on Joe Biden's build back better and you're going to win. What are the issues? 
Yeah. So you're going to turn the whole COVID thing around, as we've already discussed on our Friday edition, in the sense that you're going to say, well, we did the best we could. It it slowed the it virus. Was, we so didn't have influenza. We, so you're going to say, so no, yeah. And there's going to be no more mutant viruses. No, you're not going to, you're going to cut back on the mask thing. You're going to, you're going to focus on older people who need help and protection. So you're going to, you're going to steal Scott Atlas's protocol exactly. and say, say okay. Oh yeah. How, how many times did we see Hillary Clinton do that little dance to the right after she had been full left? They, okay. they do it every single time and they'll, they'll pull out every issue, the border, they'll start closing that down in ways and say, well, you know, our policy really was good, even Sorry, though it's been a total a disaster. The whole who left the barn and you're going to close the door and say, there's not any cows left in the barn. They're not going to, they can't get out. <laughs> Is that what you're going to say? No, I think yeah. people got a long memory. People are not stupid. They can be, I mean, they can act stupidly. But you push them and push them and push them, and finally they get angry. And they're not going to take it. I really believe that. And I talk to people from all walks of life. I do. I talk but to people, and I try one, to just listen. I know I'm One, one last listen. thing, though, on that, that you are talking to people who, like the Puritans in their moral greatness, think that what they're doing with their diversity, equity, and inclusion is moral. Inclusion is moral. And they think they're on the moral high ground. So they're going to buy into anything that their leadership says, I think. A lot of those people You're talking about the bicoastal white elite who believes that because they're superior morally to everybody else, they can use any means necessary to achieve morally superior ends. I agree with you. That's about 30% of the country. And the great decisive factor is that it's basically two things. Are you able to get your base out? And in 2018, they did. And they did it on the basis of Trump was uncouth and crude and collusion. And and they got the swing voter. And they did it to a lesser extent, but successfully in 2020. And that's that 10 to 15 percent. I'm looking at the polls of independents are about 58 percent anti-Biden. And Democrats are down generically. If you ask somebody, you're going to vote for a Democrat or Republican, it was always a Democrat. There's more of them. They give stuff free. And the old rule was they needed to be about, Republicans had to be within three or four minuses, minus three or four they would win. But now they're up five or six. They were up nine. And it's going to be very hard for those guys to win because of what they've done. They've alienated the swing voter. And the supporters terrified of racial questions. They are terrified of critical race theory. They're terrified of crime. They're terrified of an open border. They're terrified of the way COVID they've been lied to and lied to and lied to about COVID. They're terrified of what's going to happen with China and Russia overseas after Afghanistan. They're terrified of paying all of their money to heat their homes or buy gas. And they're terrified of owing $30 trillion because they know inflation or high taxes and recessions. One of the two are coming or both. And so I think that all of that echo chamber will not be strong enough to make them make a mistake three times, but we'll see. It's a long way to November, but everybody says it's a long way to November. Things can change. And what they mean is it can't get worse. Yeah. And I'll grant you one. I think it can. Yes. 
That's true. But, and you're right on one thing that all they need is the margin. So as long as the margin comes to the right, then you're good. All you need is that few people that put you over the margin. So. Faith on the right is, is very, very mobilized. Yeah. They are angry and they're the type of, you saw that in Virginia when they, in a blue state, they voted for a Republican governor and Terry McAuliffe had every advantage. He had the unions, he had the money, he had the Obamas, he had the Clintons. He was next to Washington. He had a great influx the last 20 years of federal workers and he lost. And it wasn't that close. He lost. He had the electioneering. I'm not going to go there, but Usually in a blue state like Virginia, if you're going to have an election, you're going to have to be two or three points ahead because votes have a tendency to be, they take on, you know, they like drones, they find their way to the ballot box when they're mailed in. So anyway, my point is that you can feel it in the air. I could feel it uh, in 2000, the day of the election, 2020, I did a lot of conservative interviews. And I said, I didn't think Donald Trump would win the popular vote. And people got very angry at me. I just, I could feel it's not going to happen. That wasn't just that they had more money and they had, I didn't understand then the apparatus that they, they used that Molly Ball outlined in Time Magazine about, she called it a conspiracy and a cabal of left-wingers, but in praise of it. But I could just feel that people were, that I knew said, I wish he wouldn't tweet or I'm getting tired or he was too rude in the first, I didn't agree with this, but that's, uh, you could feel it. And it would be yeah. honest to deny what was going on, but I can feel it now. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you yeah. can see left-wing people who are getting, you know, whether it's Bill Maher, or if I said Larry Summers or someone, even Hillary Clinton the other day. So I think, you know, it's about time. We kind of went a little bit too far. Time to go back to the middle. There you go. That's that tacking to the to the right, Hillary Clinton. So you it know does. that's where they're going. Well, we'll know it when they start drinking like she did in 2008 in the primary Boilermaker. Remember, she went into a bar bowling. One day she was bowling next to she had whiskey and beer and drank it. I can't forget it. <laughs> All right. Well, Victor, um, I think we're going to leave talking about California for another day. Yes. We are going to right now take a word from our sponsor, and then we'll come right back to talk about a few more of your books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. And just before we go on to talk about your books, I want to remind everybody that we have new accounts on Gitter and on MeWe. So come join us there if that's your preferred social media. Also, be sure to listen to Jack Fowler and Victor on their two episodes on Tuesday and Thursday of each week of the Victor Davis Hansen Show. 
And so let's go. We wanted to talk a little bit about the soul of battle. Land was everything and bonfires of the humanities, your eighth, ninth, and 10th book, I believe. Well, I talked about warfare and agriculture and Western way of war, but I kind of took a hiatus from military history and wrote about classics and farming. And I had a editor, I had a great agent. I've had him, we've never signed a contract. We had a handshake. I think it's 33 years, Glenn Hartley and writers, representatives. He's a wonderful agent. And he just said to me, you know, why don't you get back to military history, especially your emphasis on ancient? And so I did. And I, I would, I read for a year and I said, you know, the three great minds, I think as strategists and tacticians were Epaminondas of Thebes. We've talked about him. And then William Tecumseh Sherman and George Patton, and they believed in the indirect approach. You don't have a Clausewitzian collision like Grant, where you meet, you know, forces around Lee at Richmond in that terrible summer of 1864, lose 100,000 casualties. You're like Sherman, you go back around and go through Georgia and demoralize and disrupt the communications and transportation. It's a difference in theory. If you want to destroy the crop, do you go and fight the farmer and cut his grapes off? Or do you just cut the roots and let them dry on the vine? So that indirect approach is a word that Liddell Hart used a lot. So I wrote about three great marches. Epaminondas' march down to Sparta, the march to the sea in 1864 by William Tecumseh Sherman, and that wonderful, I shouldn't say wonderful in the context of war, but that brilliant end of July to mid-September march across mid-France by uh, George Patton. They got him almost to the... Rhine River, 50 miles a day, at Falaise Gap, across the Seine River, et cetera, et cetera. Brilliant. And it was the idea that these people were, they were moralists. They wanted to get war over very quickly. They didn't want to kill a lot of soldiers of the enemy. They surely didn't want to lose their own, but they, they thought that what we call amoral, that is exempting the infrastructure and population and territory of the enemy, is actually uh, amoral to exempt them. And they were going to bring war home and try to demolish the, I don't know, the psychology, the confidence of the enemy without necessarily killing a lot of them. So when Patton was just doing these wonderful sweeps around German troops, especially at the Falaise Gap, and then going beyond it each time and relying on the Air Force Thunderbolt airplanes to cover his flanks, it was, it was just sort of like a symphony. And the same thing with Sherman, if you read a lot of the diaries that were written. So that was one. It was called The Soul of Battle. And uh, I enjoyed writing it. What was your next one, Sammy? I didn't know if you, which order you wanted. Uh, yeah, The Land Was Everything came in the next chronological order. Yeah, that was a series of essays following Fields Without Dreams. In other words, I had written a book about going broke and the end of small farming. It's gone now. I look out the window and there's no small farmers anywhere in my neighborhood. But I wanted to write some essays about why that happened. So I wrote 10 chapters on what was vertically integrating agriculture. In other words, owning trucking, packing, distribution, brokerage versus just producing foods. And how that was agribusiness was different than farming, both as it was much more profitable, but you were losing something about the ground. 
And then the ancient idea of, of a farm serving dual purposes, producing citizens and communities versus just food. And agrarianism is both. So when you take a person off 100 acres and a family off, then you lose that person's uh, stake, his commitment to earn a living and be a shepherd or custodian of the land. You put a hired man there every 100 acres and you have 15,000 acres, then food is being produced, but without social or cultural advantages is what I was trying to say. Not that it wasn't just as good food. And that was the paradox I tried to point out. A lot of people that I have, Gene Logitson or Wendell Berry had said that family farming and agrarianism was more productive or better food. And sometimes I'd seen family farmers who were so broke and losing it that they would skimp or use chemicals. They wouldn't, whereas the corporations went right by the book because they had all this money because they were vertically integrated. So I, I did a lot of paradoxical issues for that book. And uh, it didn't sell as well as Land Was Everything. And then I decided that after 10 years of teaching and I'd done farming for five years and then teaching and farming for a number of years, I was now in my 40s and I was writing a lot. And I went once into the bank and the Federal Land Bank guy said, let me get this straight. You make a little money on these books and you lose a lot of money farming. So do you like not staying in the house and writing an article to get money, but you do like getting on a tractor to lose it? Is that what's so wonderful about, because this is what your loan shows. You get on your Massey, you know, 265 and you probably pay me, you know, 20 bucks an hour for the privilege of getting filthy dirty. <laughs> and that's I harsh thought, yeah that's harsh. <laughs> well the guy was a harsh banker and i just tested him but he did me a lot of favors because i said you know what i have some certain skills that i can speak or i can explain things but i don't have skills i'm not a good agribusiness person and i i i am not cut out for it i like farming i'm a good farmer but i'm a lousy agribusiness person a man has to know his limitations so i i stopped actively farming and at that point, I never wrote another book about farming. Yeah, okay. And then also, we were going to talk about Bonfires of the Humanities. A fun book. That was, uh, I had two great colleagues in my life in classics. Bruce Thornton, who was a colleague at Cal State Fresno, UCLA PhD. He's written about 12 books. He's one of the most talented classicists. He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. And John Heath, who is not only a great classicist, but he had a wonderful sense of humor. <laughs> and he wrote some very humorous articles about kind of critiques of classics. I did too. I wrote one on the personal voice. It was a, before the woke and diversity, inclusion, equity, all that crap. And race, there was something called personal voice theory, PVT. And that was, I'm going to write about Catullus's, uh lesbia poem but it's inseparable from who i am so i mean not that you won't you can put the first person but these people were writing these things that were all about their own neuroses and melodramatic divorces and breakups and crises and meltdowns in the context of latin literature so and it wasn't very interesting so i I kind of took on that in an essay, and there were essays about the crisis in academia. They were all pretty prescient. I think people would would enjoy reading them. They were very well documented, footnoted, et cetera. And so I enjoyed that a great deal, all that right. book. 
Yeah. Well, thank you, Victor. Those all three of those sound like excellent books. I think you wanted to say earlier that land was everything didn't sell as well as fields without dreams. I I didn't mean to, but you said it and you said it didn't sell as well as land was everything. And and you were talking about the land was was everything. That Sammy, I wrote that for the publisher. I think that was free press and I sent it in and the publisher who had signed the book had left or been fired. So I had a new editor and he called me up and said, well, I like, your fields with a dream book it was reviewed everywhere yeah but it didn't sell what i thought it would not like you haven't really sold a book like western way of war so i said well what are you saying he said well write a book your agent says you can write about wars this stole a battle book i said okay and then he said this and we won't publish this land was everything book unless you do the other book first i said well it's all done it took me a year to write he said we're going to let it sit there so I, and I was flat broke. So I went out and I got all, I tore up my little office bedroom and I got all new books. And I read till two in the morning about everything you can imagine in Sherman. I read every scrap from the TLG, Thesaurus Linguae Grecae about Epaminondas. I read things that I know I hadn't even known existed. I read the Polyvasova, lengthy German. I did everything as fast as I could. And a year and a half, I wrote the book and I called him up and go, here it is. Now can you publish my farming book? I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But they, the funny thing was, as this happens in life, they're right and you're wrong. The soul battle sold very, very well. And the land was everything did not. Yeah. Well, I can tell your listeners, having read much of what you've written, that it's always a gift to the mind and the eye. This style and content are without comparison in any writer. Thank you. I I, I enjoy writing, and uh, I like meeting people, and I even like criticism. So I'll, I'll still go places where somebody will come up and say, I really... I was farming, I was going broke, I was suicidal, I read Fields About Dream, I knew I was not alone. Just that one comment will make me, or we'll get into one time I, I had this crazy idea of writing a novel as history. In other words, a history of a Epaminondas, but through a fiction, but it wasn't quite a novel, it wasn't quite history. But it sold pretty well for a novel, but I saw a military officer and he came up and he said, this is exactly what I wanted. And he talked to me for two hours in a bar and <laughs> So you never know, and you, yeah. your readers are what, just like the listeners, anybody, I see people that say, hey, I listen to your podcast, and I really appreciate that. And I try to give them good content, and your job, Sammy, if you know, is to keep me from going off on uh, your tangents. Yeah, I'll keep you on track. And to that end, Victor Davis Hanson, let's go ahead and say goodbye to our audience. And goodbye, everybody, and thank you again for listening to us. Yeah, this is Victor Davis Hansen and Sammy Wink, and we're signing off.